Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest is Brian Bears of Bears Capital Management. He manages $4.6 billion across a variety of strategies. He's highly qualitative, highly concentrated. We're going to talk about his process right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the acquirers' funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirers' funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. So, so you, you, you wrote a book, The Small Cap Advantage, that came out. When did that come out? 2011, I think. I, I, I wrote it during the financial crisis, basically. And uh, it came out, I think it was published in 2011, um, you know, ultimately. And a funny story about that is that I was paid a $5,000 advance by Wiley. And uh, I just, this Q1 of 2020, uh, earned yeah, you paid my it back. royalty. <laughs> I, I got my first check for like $112 or something. Well, you have a look at the return on investment of Wiley. It's like 40%. <laughs> yeah. They keep all that money for themselves. It all flows That's back right. to Wiley. That's very, right. Very they, they were wonderful. They basically let me do what I wanted. And the origin story is actually kind of interesting in that. Um, so Pat Dorsey is a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you know Pat, but uh, I don't know him. I know, you know who he is. He's, he's uh, built the equity research division at Morningstar is you know, rightly credited with uh, a lot of kind of the moat concept crystallization in our business. And he's just a, he's a heck of an investor and he's even, even better guy. And I called him one day and I said, you know, you wrote, there's these little book series. There's the little book that beats the market, the little book of, you know, this and that and the other thing. And I said, there's not a little book of little stocks. This should yeah, be, good like, this should be a book, right? Yeah. And so he said, that, that's a great idea. Let me put you in touch with my publisher at Wiley. And so I ran it up the flagpole and they said, this is a phenomenal idea. We love it, but no one knows who you are. And so this is kind of reserved for rock star, uh, you know, style authors. And so you're not that. And so humbling thing. But they did say we checked around and you have a decent reputation in the kind of institutional endowment community and that sort of thing. Um, is, is there a way you could sort of pivot that into a book about small caps that's more a professional book rather than kind of a mass market book? And that kind of got me thinking, okay, yeah, you know, kind of a check the box. I've always wanted to write a book. I felt like I had some things to say, particularly around um, just kind of how to structure a business, an investment management business. And um, they let me choose the chapter list and the content. And, um, you know, other than correcting a few grammatical errors, of which there are plenty, uh, you know, the, it was, you know, it, it was the book that I intended to write. And, you know, I'm happy. I, I've read it actually for the first time in about a decade, about a month and a half ago. And I was like, okay. You know, to a large extent, it still holds up after 10 years. It's not, you know, it's not completely topical and relevant today, but it's, you know, there are some concepts in there. Um, I think that were pretty, pretty prescient. In particular, one about um, price to book. So I kind of took issue in a paragraph of the book about the kind of Fama French three-factor model and how price to book was an contrarian indicator of value for so many years, right? And um, I was like, there, people shouldn't be paying attention to price to book. There's just a lot of reasons you shouldn't pay attention to price to book. And just because it works in Fama French, a three-factor model doesn't mean it has like underlying validity. And here we are, you know, probably 10 years later from the book, but 15 to 20 years later, it has just stopped working completely. 
And, you know, my contention was always kind of derived from, I don't know if you've ever read the book Quest for Value by G. Bennett Stewart. I haven't, no. It's a great, great book. And it, it talks a lot about how leverage can actually be used to a company's advantage, you know, conservatively and increasing returns on equity and that sort of thing. But in it, he has this great paragraph where he basically just says, look, a book value is a measure of the cash that's gone into a business, but it is not the measure of a value of a business, right? It's an account, arcane accounting statistic. And everything that goes you know, into book value has nothing to do with what could come out of book value, right? Like what right. the value of business is the cash produced in the future. You know, it, the, the perhaps, you know, um, logical or erroneous actions of management is just, you know, tucked into book value and then adjusted along the way by accountants. And, you know, why, why should anyone be paying attention to that unless the business is in liquidation or it's an insurance company or maybe a bank or something like that? But for a normal operating business, we should just all be ignoring book value. And in fact, I would argue you should probably screen on high price to book because it's indicative of a business that's, you know, market's reasonably efficient. It should produce a list of businesses that are over earning on their capital base, which is what we all want, right? Take a little bit of capital and earn a lot of cash coming out of it. Like the market probably recognizes that. And so, you know, to not to get too quickly into our process, but, you know, we're very qualitative in our analysis. And so we don't do any of that computer screening or, or filtering up front, zero factor modeling. And so anyway, hey, hate to start off by going on a tangent under book value, but it seems topical given the underperformance of value generally and that kind of everybody's love of Ben Graham and price to book as a metric. So, yeah. Um, so what's the, the thesis in the, uh, the small cap advantage, which is the name of your book? What's the, what's the, what, what is the thesis? Well, it really is one, an argument that, um, you know, small caps generally outperform, right? I mean, if you divide the the investment universe into deciles, the first decile being the largest um, cohort of, of U.S. public companies, the 10th being the smallest, that the ninth and 10th decile typically produce about a 2% advantage over the first and the second decile. So there's an argument in the book to say that, you know, small caps outperform, which isn't, you know, some earth shattering thesis, right? Everybody kind of knows that they see an Ibbotson chart on their local stockbrokers, uh, you know, office wall, and they see that, but um, they don't really understand where that performance comes from. And, you know, there is, you know, an argument to be in small caps generally, but there are also ways that active management can improve on that 2% advantage. And so you, um, you know, sort of logically think that small caps are the place where, you know, stocks go to die. <laughs> right. I mean, they're leaving the, the, you know, the public universe through small cap land. And so if you kind of avoid those, um, you know, kind of graveyard stocks, you're going to do well. And then if you structure a strategy around not necessarily subjecting yourself to reverse survivorship bias and capturing those that, you know, are successful and leave the universe, that there are easy ways that you should be able to even improve on that 2% advantage. And then there's an argument to say, well, you know, the individual investor has a little bit more parity in that um, in that category, you know, with the institutional investor who commits significant time and resources to it because there's not a lot of pro professional participation, especially in that very bottom rung, um, because there are structural reasons why people who are successful sort of elevate themselves out of the space. Through, just graduate you know, That's right. And, and there's, there's um, you know, there are financial incentives to do that, right? I mean, you know, if you build a strategy from, from scratch, um, you typically want to make a lot of money, 
And to make a lot of money, you need asset-based fees. And if you are successful, those asset-based fees increase as you either increase diversity of the portfolio and become more like the index, or you get up into large and mega cap names. And so, um, you know, there's an argument to be made in the book about, you know, you, you too can, you know, do this if, if you, you know, apply your craft uh, and build a process that, that takes advantage of some of the structural inefficiencies in the space. And then finally, there's some commentary around kind of how to build a professional style um, investment management business. You know, I think that um, my story, to the extent that it's interesting to people, really has to do with the fact that um, I didn't come from a larger firm. I started my, my company when I was 27 years old out of the spare bedroom of my condo in Austin, Texas. And I think people kind of like that story. It's kind of the hey, you know, maybe I, they sort of see themselves in that. Maybe I can do this too. You know, I've read the Buffett letters and I want to be a professional investor and, and hey, this guy did it, so maybe I can do it too. And so I didn't sort of peel out of one of the big midtown Manhattan hedge funds and, you know, have a stable investor base come with me and, you know, have a team. It was literally me and a laptop and some accounting software and, and I was off to the races. Now, I, I did have three and a half years behind that of working in the industry. And so I had a lot of confidence around my ability to build out the functionality that I needed to service uh, the types of clients that I was going for. But I think there's a little bit of resonance in, in my history with people that are kind of the wannabe hedge fund crowd or wannabe investment manager crowd. So you launched the firm um, in 2000 and was your, y- your first strategy was a small cap strategy, presumably? It was actually micro cap. So um, to even predate that a little bit, I'm, <clears throat> I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which isn't really relevant to anything other than, you know, there's a Buffett connection there. And the connection is that, you know, when I was a a kid, my dad would drag my brothers and I to these kind of business meetings that he had, and he was doing some entrepreneurial stuff and doing some real estate and this and that. And, and so we kind of got a little bit of uh, early exposure to kind of the business chatter and deals and things like that. And, and that sparked my interest in business. Generally, Uh, I thought the stock pages were interesting in the local paper and opened up a brokerage account when I was in my teens. And then, um, you know, found as I was reading annual reports, the Berkshire Hathaway annual letters and said, hey, this guy's in Austin. I mean, sorry, in Omaha. And um, and he wasn't I mean, he was known at the time, but he wasn't the superstar that he is today. And so, you know, I felt like I had really found something. And that discovery piece was kind of exciting to me. And so. Um, so I read everything I could about Buffett, really liked, um, you know, everything that I'd read, tried to sort of, you know, employ some of those principles in my PA when I was in, in college. And, um, and I made a, a lot of the early mistakes every investor does early on and, you know, discovered some things that I thought would work, tried to start to step, separate skill from luck and understand the game professionally. Uh, I studied math and actuarial science at the University of Nebraska, and then right after college moved to Austin. And I started working for a, a small cap shop in Austin that was exactly the opposite of what we do currently. It was purely quantitative in its investment sourcing and implementation, highly diversified, and it serviced high net worth. It serviced institutional clients through third-party marketers and consultants, and it had a 40-act fund business, so mutual fund business. So I worked there for three and a half years, and I got kind of my operational stripes while I was getting my CFA and started to codify in my brain what uh, what I would do as an entrepreneur in the space. And what I recognized was that there were a lot of large institutional allocators that were looking at investment managers 
And the, the landscape was changing. It was moving from this 60-40 stocks, bonds kind of implementation to what is now known as the endowment model. And it was kind of popularized by the, um, by the Yale chief investment officer, David Swenson. And he kind of moved away from 60-40 and said, hey, anywhere I can get equity-like returns with little to no correlation to the U.S. equity market, that's what we want to do. And we are perpetual time horizon, non-taxable, so we have this advantage that we can press. And so that was really the movement into hedge funds, into infrastructure, into real estate, these illiquid asset classes that could produce equity-like returns, but a smoother line up and to the right. And so there's a long way of saying, I saw that movement happening. I read Swenson's book upon its publication in 2000, and I recognized, aha, okay, the public equity book is shrinking, but they're ditching these 100 stock 1% managers where you know the typical institution in the 80s had 10 to 15 investment managers in their public book, but they each had 100 stocks charging 1%. So they're basically paying active fees and getting passive results, right? Which was bonkers and everybody kind of knew it. And, and so I saw the world shifting to more concentrated high active share managers that could um, you know could be real alpha driving exposures for the public book. And so despite the fact there were there were less absolute dollars going to public equity, the large firms were getting fired and Yale and others were starting to find firms like ours where they were highly concentrated. And so our strategies are eight to twelve stocks. So very highly concentrated, high active share. But it works in a multi-manager context. If you have a handful of managers like us, you can have a perfectly diversified portfolio if you're the overall you know, tertiary institution, right? But you have a handful of, you know, high conviction, concentrated managers. That's what you want. You want them focused on, you know, just their big swings of the bat that come over the middle of the plate in their process. And and so that's what we offer. So when I started the firm in June of 2000, I sort of saw that that shift happening and said, there's an opportunity here to start a firm that could um, actually have a chance at, you know, 27 years old with a laptop you know, I could compete against all these larger firms because they're getting fired and people are looking for these hedge fundy like boutiques in the long only space. And in retrospect, that was the kind of one stroke of architectural genius in my story was that recognition. And here we are today, 20 years later, and pretty much most large institutional allocators have adopted this endowment model and are looking for concentration in some capacity. And so we're still a lot more concentrated than most. And we started actually in microcap. And so microcap for us, um, I, th I felt like would be the best chance for us to gain some kind of a variant perception in the names that we were studying, you know, against a lot of these large firms that, you know, had, you know, libraries of research on public companies, because there still exists, and this was 20 years ago, still today, this sort of vacuum of professional participation in microcap. Um, and the reason, especially in concentration, because you can only deploy a little bit of capital in that space before you get too big. So what happens is you start in microcap, you know, you put up some good numbers and then you, you know, you end up owning 50 names or 100 names. So you can accommodate a larger fee paying asset base. Or as we talked about, you graduate up into, into large cap. And so we've made the accommodation and said, we're going to we're going to restrict the amount of money that we take in each of our strategies to stay sized appropriately for the space. So in microcap, uh, you know, we're still eight to 12 names um, and we closed it at 130 million in contributed capital. And we've given money back four different times over our history to sort of stay sized in that space. And then for investors that like our process and, 
and you know want to grow with us we've we've launched a small cap strategy that you know is sort of bounded by the Russell 2000 uh, and then finally we introduced in 2014 a mid-large cap strategy and so as you might expect the fees go down as you go up because it's more professional and it's harder you know to sort of produce the sort of alpha that everybody wants as you as you go up the chain but we still feel like we have given our qualitative uh, research efforts um, you know, a really good uh, case for variant perception across the market cap spectrum. And so, you know, the key to our performance really is the qualitative aspects of the research, which we can obviously talk about, and the extreme concentration. I mean, we'll have, you know, a couple 20% positions, a few in the teens, you know, I mean, that's very unusual for an institutional investment manager, because it, you know, it's really difficult when you, uh, when you're wrong. <laughs> right, like you look really, <laughs> you look really stupid for a while. But if you have a good batting average and a good process that would limit your, you know, your potential to fall into some of these, you know, landmine names, um, you know, if you get a 60, 65% batting average with a concentrated portfolio, your disparity between, you know, your performance and the index can be can be pretty significant. Let's talk a little bit about your process. You say you're qualitative and you don't start with any quantitative screens. So how do you find ideas and then how do you prove them up? Yeah, this is the tough part. Um, so it really is starting with A and going to Z in the, in the <laughs> universe of public companies. And so it starts with the capture of the public companies in the market cap segment that we're looking at and literally starting with ruling out the names that we know are off limits for us. And so those would be, uh, because we have a largely non-taxable uh, foundation endowment client base, um, or people that are allocators that have this exposure elsewhere, we'll throw out things like REITs, uh, MLPs, stuff like that, because typically our clients are getting that exposure elsewhere. And they, they have a real estate manager, they'll have you know midstream exposure through their oil and gas managers or whatever. And so we'll eliminate some swath of the of the investable universe uh, through just very rudiment rudimentary elimination. Um, we typically don't do a lot of work in banks and thrifts um, in the microcap space. When I started, one in six companies was a regional bank or thrift. Uh, black box businesses very difficult to get some sort of variant perception. If you do eke out a variant perception and you you're really right, maybe you get sort of 12% returns on equity or something like that, which is it's fine, it's great, we'd all be happy with that, but uh, you know, I think we could do better than that. And so we've eliminated those. We're just looking at kind of real businesses. And once we get that, that data set of real businesses, then this is where the meat of our process is. And we have a 10-person research team here in Austin, and you know, pre-COVID, we're very, very active in travel on airplanes and in rental cars and kicking tires and meeting with management teams and trying to figure out, um, you know, frankly, what an average company looks like from sort of three qualitative buckets. Uh, the key to our process is uh, evaluation of the management team, um, the moat or competitive advantage of the business, and then the prospects for future growth. And so those are the qualitative factors that we focus on. And if you think about what we're paid to do, it really is two things. It's the discernment between exceptional and average in these three qualitative buckets. And it's then selection from our pre-qualified list of exceptional companies, how what to put into the portfolio and how much to weight it. So that's that's kind of the meat of, of our process and, and you know what we're paid to do. And it takes a lot of work. 
And one of the benefits of it taking a lot of work is that other people are not really equipped and resourced to do it. And so there's a little moat around our business as well, because there's a, a lot of people that look at what we're doing and say, yeah, oh, that's what I want to do. But then that means you got to spend you know, a lot of time going to Sioux Falls, South Dakota or Boise, Idaho to research the public companies in that, in that area when it's kind of easier to just sit in front of your screen and trade ideas with your friends and scrape 13 Fs. And we don't do any of that stuff. It's literally get out and meet a hundred companies. And once you've met a hundred, you'll have a good understanding of what an average company looks like from a qualitative standpoint so that you can more quickly spot exceptional ones. It's very much like a, an institutional allocator would meet managers, right? So, you know, the good allocators that we know are meeting lots and lots of managers, hundreds of managers a year. And my guess is if you're a first time allocator and you're, you know, right out of college and you get a job and you meet your first investment manager, you might think, wow, they're amazing. Like they're, you know, we want to put a bunch of money with them. And then you meet 10 more and you say, okay, wait a second. They're all impressive in some unique way. Then you meet a hundred and you say, okay, I understand the game now. You know, everybody's a good salesperson. Everybody claims to be different, but after a hundred, I can actually spot the ones that are different. The same, same sort of work applies to junior analysts that come on board with us. So we give them the company credit card say, get on the road and basically don't come back until you understand what an average company looks like so that you can more quickly spot that exceptionalism. And importantly, we think that those buckets, those qualitative buckets are what drive stock price performance. So if you think about it, you know, um, an average company earning average returns on equity will produce average results. The, you know, back to 1926, the best data we have from Ibbotson shows you, you get a you know, nine to 10% return in the U S stock market. And so that's probably on average what people are compounding their internal equity. I mean, if you think that the stock market is simply a reflection of internal compounding of business value, then to get above average stock price performance, you need above average business compounding. And how do you get above average business compounding? Well, you can't do it if you have no competitive advantage, right? Somebody else is going to open up shop ac across the street and compete away your economic margin via price. You can't do it if you have poor management that doesn't understand competitive advantage and how to press that advantage and how to reinvest back in the business. And you can't do it if you don't have some long runway for growing that compounding. And so that's why we focus on those qualitative buckets. You know, we're qualitative because the key determinants of value over time are qualitative. And so if we get those qualitative buckets right, we can be a little bit wrong in the price. And with patience, we can still make some money. So that's why we focus our process on those qualitative elements. And it just so happens that it's hard to do. Other people aren't doing the work that we're doing. We've had 20 years to build up this cumulative data set of qualitative characteristics that we think kind of press our advantage. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the meat of our process. And then if we find something, if you're an analyst with us and you come back to the office and, and you say, I, I found this amazing company and here's what they're doing and here's their management team and here's what, you know, what the prospects look like, uh, then you present it formally to our research team and we kind of give it the gladiators, thumbs up, thumbs down. And, <laughs> and uh, if, if we all sort of say, look, it's the, it's the top idea that we've, you know, we've seen recently, we'll add it to what we call our focus list, which is our, our kind of buy list. And then, then we'll do valuation work. And so kind of back to your original comment, um, screeners use valuation as an input to their process, which in my opinion leads them into value traps, right? If you screen on low price to book, low price to earnings, low EVD, but what you end up with is a bunch of businesses that the market has essentially assigned 
a low valuation to because they're probably under earning on their capital base and in some kind of economic decline. And in a concentrated portfolio with 10 stocks, you don't want those in your portfolio. You want best businesses run by the best people with long runways for growth. And so, you know, we were into this kind of kind of compounding crowd back 20 years ago and when it was a little, there, there were fewer of us. But, um, but I think that the, uh, the database that we built up over 20 years has really led us to just kind of a handful of the most exceptional companies. And so if you, if you look at our 13F and you're like, man, they're owning some companies that are trading at, you know, 80 times free cash flow or something like that, you know, that's a little bit, um, it's a, you, you can misconstrue our kind of valuation, uh, uh, discipline because it looks like we own a bunch of expensive names when in fact, you actually have to run the DCF. You have to understand what they're doing, what the tangential growth opportunities are. Maybe there's some M&A component to their recent history or, or, or future uh, that you know, may be misunderstood by other market participants. You really need the nuanced understanding of all this stuff. And so when our consultants, institutional allocators look at us, sometimes they kind of eyebrows go up and say, wait a second, like how can I? how can I call you a growth manager, a value manager with these metrics? And, and we say, damn the torpedoes, we're going to buy the best companies we can. And I don't really care how the, the statistics sort out at the end of the quarter or what it looks like on the account statement. Uh, there's a very interesting chart in your, uh, in your brochure where you talk about finding extreme winners. And there's a, basically the chart is it shows there's a rump of companies that sort of fall uh, below the average or near the average. And then there's this very long right tail of extreme winners. So how, how do you go about finding extreme winners? What's the, what's the differentiator of those companies? Yeah, it's great. You're referring to a histogram in, in, in our, uh, in our uh, company presentation that basically shows that most companies underperform the average. And it's really the performance of the index is driven by a handful of fat right tail businesses. It's about 7% of, of stocks that actually power the returns of the index. And those we dub as extreme winners, which are essentially the long-term compounders that you would, you know, probably think of as you, you kind of run this uh, analogy in your head. But, you know, you, you have Starbucks and Microsoft and, you know, Home Depot and these that have, you know, compounded at exceptional rates for extremely long time. Those are the, the, the names that power the returns of the index. Those are what we're trying to isolate through the qualitative work that we do. It's like, what's the future extreme winner look like? And, you know, as I referred to before, the, you know, the, the characteristics of those names are typically that they have some unique competitive positioning. They have some um, dynamic at, at the management level where they're extremely good operators. Maybe there's a founder owner operator dynamic. Maybe there's uh, unusual pathways for reinvestment back into the business you know, or, you know, maybe there's just some unbelievable runway for growth where they're the, you know, sort of first wave mover in that, in that, you know, sort of growth dynamic. And so we're just trying to isolate those characteristics. Um, there's a, there's a book that's out there that's called hundred baggers. I don't know if you've ever heard of it before, yep. but the, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just kind of kind of chronicling, you know, public companies that have hundred times themselves. And, and that's kind of the analog for us. It's like, what do you do at a high level, Brian? Well, we try to find smaller companies that get really big. I mean, that's kind of what we do. And so I, I, you know, when I was looking at that book and the, you know, the list of those companies, there's probably a third of them that we would never invest in. And they would be, you know, companies that are maybe in some kind of, uh, binary outcome FDA drug trial type of a dynamic where, 
you know, either they get the thumbs up from the FDA and it's a bonanza or it's a zero. You know, th those are names that we would we would avoid because we don't have any PhDs in biochemistry on staff and we're, that's not our game. Um, you know, there's a handful of oil and gas names where, you know, they caught the, the right side of some macro variable or something like that. Again, those are names that we would, you know, not be playing in. We don't, we're not, despite being in Texas, we're not oil and gas investors and aren't any smarter than anybody else in that area. Um, but there's, you know, probably two thirds of that list where I, I said to myself, yeah, these are on limits types of companies for us and we want to capture it. And, you know, here we are 20 years later and I'm proud to say we probably have, you know, I don't know, a half a dozen or so that would qualify, you know, for the current version of that book. I mean, we've, we've got, you know, we've got names that have been long-term compounders that are on lists of the best performing stocks over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, something like that. Uh, we haven't timed them all perfectly. I mean, that's um, almost impossible task, but you know, the, the longer we do this, the more we realize that the right, the right thing is if we find one of these is just to try and try and get out of our own way and let the patient, compounding work for us. Uh, but it's really difficult when all you do is stare at screens all day long and, and think about these names. You get almost too close to the, to the tree to see the forest, so to speak. Uh, let's talk about valuation for a little bit. So you're, you, you favor a DCF um, and, and you have some uh, hedging around that, but you, you like a 10% cost of capital, which is reasonably high in, in the current market. So Perhaps uh, just talk us through uh, a typical valuation, and then maybe I'll just t take you through the four names in your brochure. Yeah, well, we ha I hate to hate to. I sent you the current brochure, so I hate to talk about current names because well, all the names. This will be time stamped. You know, maybe we can talk about some historical names, or sure. I can give you some examples to help. That's you why I didn't mention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, so the you know the the 10% um, discount rate embedded in our DCFs is really reflective of it being an first of all, it's a recognition that there are inherent limitations in the DCF model itself, and what we're trying to do, what's the point of a DCF, is to try and get an approximate valuation of a company, okay, and by in, by using 10%, what we're doing is saying that's the approximate return of the U.S. stock market since 1926, and so if we come up with a valuation on a name then, and we find that it is priced appropriate, we find that the appraisal matches the current stock price, we can reasonably say that going forward, we're gonna get market-like returns from this name. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So it's trying to, use, trying to use a common size measuring stick for all companies and get a feel for whether something is undervalued, overvalued, or appropriate, appropriately valued when contrasted with the approximate returns we have seen from the US stock market since 1926. I'm not saying that this is the most perfect way that you can value a company, and I totally get that 10% is kind of punitive, especially in the current environment, and will extend a DCF out much longer than most people. We will also hold names much longer than most people, even when we feel like the names are, are way, have raced way past our intrinsic value estimates. And so the idea is to try and be disciplined on the buy when we have some variant perception and we feel like the name is reasonably cheap. And, and then to say, okay, if we're right about the valuation and we buy it right, we're gonna get better than market returns going forward because that's, that's the whole game that we're involved in. So that's why the 10%. Um, sometimes you have situations where, um, you know, and, and this, is, this is something that we have done a lot of kind of navel gazing on in the past, especially in the past five years, is that sometimes you have situations where we have approved names for our focus list, meaning that it has actually 
you know, been one of the most exceptional qualitative names we've come across. We've approved it for purchase. We've done the valuation and it just seems always too expensive to buy. Right. And I think that's a very common problem with, um, you know, in our industry, especially in the current environment, it seems like things are just always too expensive to buy. And what's interesting is if you do kind of some analysis around this, those names have actually, in some cases, performed even better than our portfolios, which themselves have done really well. And so, you know, we sort of say we're missing out on some of the best names because they're kind of perennially overvalued. And so, I mean, I have all of these war stories where we've identified these names, you know, Tyler Technologies and others where, you know, we saw them when they were a couple hundred million in market cap and we recognized them, we studied them, we approved them, met the management, got to know them, maybe did some user conferences, went to, you know, some industry trade shows. We, you know, affirmed the competitive thesis around the name and uh, we just sat there sucking our thumb as a thing, you know, 10 times itself in the market and we never, never got a chance to own it. And so, um, so the valuation DCF piece of it is, in my opinion, the least uh, reliable and accurate part of any manager's process. It's got artificial precision that everybody puts way too much weight in. And um, it is for that reason that we incorporate a lot of <clears throat> the qualitative assessment um, of the individual businesses into the portfolio management decision-making itself. So unlike a lot of managers, well, they'll say, we're going to rank order our opportunity set uh, from pr uh, on price to intrinsic value. We're going to sell the $0.10 cent dollars and buy the $0.60, cent dollars, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. Um, we don't do that. Uh, despite my math background, it's very seductive to have a robust process like that. Your institutional clients love to hear that stuff because it makes them feel comfortable that you're not going rogue in any way, that there's a real structure and a process right. around it. But the sausage is made a little bit more, um, it's messier. Uh, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's a softer process than that. It is, you know, um, you know, company X at 80 cents in the dollar, uh, may be a better bet than company Y at 70 cents on the dollar because you have a higher qualitative conviction in the management in the future growth of the business or the moat around the business. And so we're, again, going back to what we're paid for, we're paid for that qualitative exceptionalism in the pre-approval process, but we're also paid for the portfolio manager judgment in using price to intrinsic value as a piece, but not, you know, uh, not, you know, uh, a strict quant quantitative process in building the portfolio and weighting the portfolio. Does that make sense? Absolutely. There's sort of there's two interesting elements to what you're doing there. There's one is that you say you extend the DCF out much longer than is typical. So how how long are you doing? What's what's a typical DCF term for you? Yeah. So it's, it just depends on the company. Uh, if we have a if we have a very so this actually goes back to a comment about the DCF itself. But if you have very predictable free cash flow dynamics, for example, we owned a microcap company a long time ago that. Um, was in the that that did, did dental practice uh, software and operations and things like that, and they had 20-year contracts with their dental practices. They had escalators built in the price. It was just a very very predictable business, and it was a sort of static cost structure. You could map it out, and you could get you know free cash flow dynamics for that business. And it was a it was a great business. It wasn't going to grow super quickly, but you could really be, in my opinion, fairly reliant on the DCF for that business. Right. 
And so we actually did uh, a pretty fair job of actually, I think we owned it three times. We had sort of three round trips in that were bought at 60 cents in the dollar, sold at maybe 120, 130 cents in the dollar and did very, very well. Then we owned um, a 3D printing company, which was growing at 30% annually and had you know, just crazy growth dynamics. And if you tried to map that thing out past year three in the DCF, I mean, you might as well just be rolling a hundred sided dice. You know, I mean, just, you have no idea what what's happening. And so in the former, you could map that out to 10, 15, even 20 years in free cash flow, and you can get a pretty re reliable number for your appraisal. Uh, it's not perfect, it never is, and there are lots of things change, but um, you could you could just be more reliant on that than in the case of a 3D print, printing company. And so we try to keep that in mind. If we have high qualitative conviction and we think that the range of outcomes for growth is not normally distributed but heavily skewed to the upside, um, and we get kind of a feel for what other people are expecting in terms of valuation and what our conservative appraisal is, we can buy incredibly high growth, uh, disperse outcome business without doing too much DCF, intense DCF work. On the contrary, if we find a very predictable business that uh, has you know very static free cash flow, free cash flow dynamics, Tyler Technologies has software contracts with local, you know, court systems and municipalities. That's a decent example of one where the DCF looks a little bit more uh, predictable. Then we can extend that out 10, 15 years, and we can kind of play with it and get you know a a a narrower. Um, range of appraisals that we can have higher confidence interval in. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You, you, you're you either pushing out the number of years that you know where something's going to happen and, and uh, perhaps having a smaller terminal value or you have a sort of shorter term and you have a chunkier terminal value. How, how do you think about those sort of um, terminal values when you're conducting the DCF? Yeah, we try in our terminal value. We are incredibly, uh, probably overly... Um, penalizing companies. And the reason why is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Bruce Greenwald. He has a book called Competition Demystified. He's a Columbia yep. professor. Um, he's got a great line in one of his books. He says, in the end, everything's a toaster. And what he means <laughs> is, you know, like the, the, you know, gravity of competitive dynamics will come to get you eventually. And when that happens, your economic margins disappear. And so in our opinion, that's what terminal value is all about. It's like, what, you know, what is the heat death of the universe for this com company look like? Right. It's just, right. you know, it's, it's now gonna be, you know, average at best. And so, so that's kind of what we try to do with our terminal values. Um, so we're not giving them any sort of, you know, you know, magic grow forever type of dynamics in there. Um, but again, you know, th these are, these are technical aspects of the DCF that I think over my 20 year career, I've spent um, more conceptual time on, but less technical time on. In fact, we we don't spend a ton of time thinking about that stuff. That stuff. We spend more time thinking about, you know, what is the competitive positioning in the marketplace? How is that changing? What does the threat of this new entrant mean for the you know the incumbent that we're investing in? Um, what does it mean when management retires and moves on? Uh, what does it mean when you know they make an acquisition? You know these sort of more immediate, qualitative, impactful things are what you, we have to really, really pay attention to. Um, and so, you know, yes, we're updating these DCFs every quarter and anytime there's something material happening with the business, but our default mode is just sort of stay the course. Uh, a, a buy or sell decision is more likely triggered 
by, well, a cell decision in particular, is more likely triggered by a deterioration in one of these qualitative buckets than it is triggered by, hey, something is 120 cents on the dollar in terms of our valuation, right? We're getting less reliant on the valuation as a driver for decision-making on the sell side. We still have it on the buy side because we wanna be buy-disciplined, right? We, we, we don't wanna overpay for names, but once we hold them, um, you know, we want to stay married to them, right? It's divorce is going to happen because there's, you know, some serious qualitative crack in the in the investment thesis. Yeah, you slightly foreshadowed where I was going to go next. That that was what I wanted to dive into. Let, let's talk about uh, competition and moats because I think that that's uh, possibly the most important part and also the most difficult part of any uh, of any thesis. Just for the fact that you've got lots of smart people out there trying to break down moats. So, what, what are the sort of moats that you look for? What do you like to find in a moat? And what, what do you think that uh, are typically received wisdom as being moats, but are probably uh, less moaty than they appear? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, there's a lot being written on moats, and there are a lot of people that are very smart thinkers on this. We, what we care about is how long can supernormal economic returns persist? And um, we, we want to know why that is, how long it can happen, and what could disrupt the apple cart. And so if it falls into one of those traditional Porter's Five Forces competitive advantage frame, you know, that framework, like we, we have a slide, you know, in our, in our deck about Porter's Five Forces for every single company, and we tease it out. There's another slide about these sort of more nuanced sources of moat. Lot, lots of technology companies have competitive lock-in and network effects and things like that. And so, you know, we obviously prefer seeing that stuff, but I would say even higher level, all of this falls into just sort of pattern recognition as analysts, right? Like what we're really trying to do is when we find exceptionalism in economics is to figure out what pattern is exists, what pattern exists that allows for that to happen. And I think moats fall into that. I think management falls into that. I think, you know, runways for growth, reinvestment, you know, M&A to some extent, all of this is just all pattern recognition flowing up to what could allow for exceptional economic returns. And so we just want to understand that. And, you know, our three buckets, moat management growth is a is an approximate framework for capturing as many of those patterns as possible. It's not totally comprehensive, but pretty comprehensive. And I think in the moat bucket, we don't have a lot to add in terms of the canon, but, you know, we're looking for, um, you know, the for entire categories of businesses that exhibit just by their very nature moats, and we just tend to shop there, right? So there are big swaths of the market which we kind of gravitate to naturally. Information services is a big part of our work. Software is a big part of our work. These SaaS model software companies obviously have rich valuations, but they're incredible business models. They weave their way into your business processes. They're very hard to kill. They charge you on a monthly basis, and opposed to premise-based, I mean, you can update the entire code base once and all of your customers benefit. I mean, it's just really, really powerful dynamics. And so we spend a ton of time there and have a lot of exposure there. Um, you know, I, you know we, we study, you know, how businesses get smarter through AI and machine learning. We study through uh, cultural advantages. We've made some investments where we just feel like, hey, the team of people themselves provide some competitive advantage just because of who they are, their background, their history, how they execute, uh, how they structure themselves, how they organize themselves and self-improve. Um, you know, there, there, there are lots of, lots and lots of models here that I think have probably been covered by others, you know, 
as comprehensively as we do. So I don't think we have a lot to add to the canon there. I think where we shine is just in the actual um, boots on the ground reps of, of actually seeing everything and illuminating what's actually happening with these companies and how that could be misunderstood by the market or overlooked. Um, and so, you know, just, just to say Visa and MasterCard have a great moat, that's, you know, of course, that's obvious to everybody and that sort of thing. Um, but to say that there's a, you know, uh, a true network effect there, you have to like really study that and get a, a more nuanced understanding of that and say, okay, how could they prevent the rise of, you know, Venmo and, and Cash App and some of these other things? And could they, you know, really, it, are the castle walls high enough? And for how long can this persist and stuff like that? And so that's, we don't own either of those two, those two companies, but, you know, that's, that's where we spend a lot of time. So. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I'll be writing a book on moats anytime soon. I'll leave that for Pat Dorsey, but um, I think he's, uh, you know, he's as good as anybody about thinking about that stuff. I think we're really good at, at that, but that's just one small part of our overall architecture. So, what about in terms of negatives? Things that uh, many folks sort of believe are moats, but uh, you guys have a different view. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, where do you feel like you be you can be tricked? Uh, you know, we we have, I think we have been tricked before on the the cultural moat. I think that there's some legitimacy to that, um, and we've seen it. Certainly, we've seen it. But there are um, a, a, a phenomenal cultural advantage with a good business system and good people running it, running up against uh, an average or highly competitive business. Um, you know, it's, that's a tough, that's a tough thing to overcome. So I'd say like, if, you know, if, if we're ranking what we prefer in moat management growth, you know, we probably would, would prefer, um, if the sliders kind of go from zero to 10 on each of those, we'd probably prefer a 10 out of 10 on, on the moat rather than the management, just because it's hard for an average management to overcome no, no, or a great management to overcome no moat than, than vice versa. Um, you know, then again, it happens all the time. You know, we, we give the example, uh, obviously Berkshire Hathaway is a great example, you know, commodity and insurance and, uh, uh textile business, you know, <laughs> with great management has turned into a behemoth, right? Um, we had, we had a lot of success owning a company called Middleby Corporation, which is a, um, a commercial cooking equipment company. Um, but it was run by, I would say a 10 out of 10 manager for better part of two decades. Who's probably the best manager that we'd ever come across. If we, if we had ever had to write the next outsiders book with, uh, um, um, blanket on the name, even though I know him. Uh, but anyway, if we had to write chapter one of the next outsiders book, we would, uh, we'd probably put Celine Bessel of Middleby as chapter one. He was just phenomenal. He had the full talent stack. That's one thing that we talk about a lot too, is, there's just this stack of talents that and characteristics that a great manager needs to have. And there's no hard and fast list, but I mean, you need to be, you know, a great salesperson, right? I mean, a great CEO can materialize business out of thin air. Uh, you need to be a great capital allocator. You need to be, you know, a great strategic operator. You need to have a good pulse on the competitive dynamics of your industry and your business. You, you see, have all these characteristics and Salim was one of those people that was just lights out in just about every category. So what about red flags for management? Is there anything that uh, you always get, you, you, you know, there's potential to be burned there, whether it be sort of incentives or alignment or pay or however you want to characterize it. 
Yeah, there's a few patterns that we we prefer to see. The first would be uh, owner operator dynamic, which is you know we we want the 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 manager or managers to have significant stock holdings and you know prefer to think of it as their business and that they are doing what the best they're they're doing the best decisions uh, for for their stock holdings that they can and us as outside passive minority shareholders kind of are along for the ride. That's the best dynamic that we can come up with, I think. Um, you know, the the alignment of incentives in the proxy is incredibly important. There's a there's a lot that that, you know, that we kind of prefer to see. Um, you know, I would say that even with the owner operator dynamic, there's always the chance that ego and ambition express themselves in a, a bad acquisition or something that could be ruinous to to outside shareholders. So, you know, there's no guarantees in any of this. There's hair on every idea, as we say, right, yeah. in, in all of these categories. Um, but I would say acquisition is where we have been most surprised uh, to the downside, where we own a name with a great moat, great management. We think we're onto something here. And, and all of a sudden, there's a bet the farm acquisition that has come out of the, the clear blue sky. And it usually relates to, you know, some, you know, megalomaniacal ambition of the management or something like that. Uh, and so I'd say that that's probably the biggest risk. Uh, I would also add that acquisition, when done correctly, again, Berkshire being a great example, um, can be a huge source of variant perception. And what I mean is, you know, had you just run a DCF on Berkshire Hathaway, the textile mill, with Warren Buffett <laughs> as a CEO, you would have just completely missed the point. Right? It's cheaper than a Nick Karn asset value yeah, basis. Exactly. It probably would have showed up on your price to book screen. Um, yeah, no, I, I really think that people are just missing the boat when you have truly phenomenal capital allocators at the helm because great things can happen. And the, the best part about it is they're unpredictable. The acquisition events themselves are unpredictable in size and in timing, right? And that right. that is a phenomenal variant perception because the sell-side analysts, they I mean, it's it's – it's suicide for them to incorporate something like that into their models, like something that's unpredictable as an acquisition, right? Um, and other buy side analysts, they're running their normal DCFs, and so they, they can't incorporate that. So um, so sometimes when you have phenomenal manager with pathway for reinvestment back in the business, huge runway for growth, and there's this sort of bolt-on acquisition strategy where these are unpredictable but usually accretive, and, and the outcomes aren't normally distributed, again, but highly skewed to the upside, you have you have a, a really powerful dynamic. We saw we saw a little bit of that in a name that we own called Heiko, which is a, a replacement parts uh, aircraft uh, manufacturer, yeah. aircraft replacement parts manufacturer, um, where the Mendelssohns are these you know Buffett acolytes, and they're really really disciplined about the internal um, capital reinvestment, but also have these opportunities to sort of pay market rates and extract better value from acquisitions, and it's just been. Uh, that, in addition to kind of the drafting dynamic they have behind the Transdime and other, you know, uh, non-replacement part manufacturers, just made that an incredibly powerful dynamic. And in, in typical uh, fashion for our firm, we didn't capture all of the upside of Heiko, but we got we got some of that great compounding, which is enough to be really accretive to our performance. But that was a that was a big win for us. But I think illustrated a lot of these patterns that we were talking about. I think uh, when if I I, I looked at several of your names and they, they are prima facie or optically expensive, um, which implies that you have uh, high expectations for their future growth. And so the re reinvestment runway is perhaps 
if not the most important, one of the, a very, very important part of the process. So how do you get, how do you think about that? How do you get comfortable that they can in fact execute on the uh, pathway that you see? Yeah. So I think, you know, so there, there are no guarantees obviously, but the question is, is, you know, a, a lot of the what ifs, right? I mean, I think value investors get um, rightly so very, um, you know, downside focused, right? That is what, what, you know, what, what could go wrong with this name? And we're very much like that. What, what could go wrong with these names and what, what could happen? Very few investors, especially in the value crowd think what could go right if they execute, you know, as, as planned and what, what's the, what is the potential for them to execute? And do we have enough faith in those three qualitative buckets for them to execute? And the answer in, in many of the names in our portfolio is they could be multiples of their current size. And again, back to that 30,000 foot view of our business, we're trying to find small companies that can get really big. I mean, pretty much without exception across all of our portfolios, each of the names has the potential to be multiples of its current size, right? And if we have a 65% batting average and we get a couple of those right, I mean, we're going to have a really, really good performance, right? And so that's the, that's the archi- architecture. It's, you know, it's not VC, it's, but you think about it, like, especially in, in micro cap, small cap, and, you know, to some extent, mid-large, you take 10 swings of the bat and, you know, hopefully you don't have any zeros. You have, you know, some that just kind of chug along and some don't execute and you try and, you know, you try and reallocate capital where you can, but some execute and crush it. And you have a name that goes from eight, 10% of the portfolio to 20, 30% of the portfolio. You recycle that capital back into other opportunities to the extent that you are still, your strategy is sized appropriately for the, for the space and any excess capital, you just redeem back to your investors, right? That's, that's, it's kind of a VC model in that regard. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we have, we have, um, as much qualitative confidence as we can get by meeting the management, market participants, you know, user conferences, trade shows, all of this qualitative uh, work to say, you know what, this company is uniquely competitively positioned, and we think that position will either strengthen over time or at least stay the same. And for some very long time, they should enjoy supernormal returns. And what does that look like if that happens, right? And now we're not betting, you know. 100 cents on the dollar that that happens. We're trying to bet 60 cents on the dollar that that happens. So we can be a little bit wrong, you know, in the price and still make a lot of money. Um, and, you know, of the 10 names, if one or two of them work out, like it's going to it's gonna work out really, really well for us. So it's an absolutely fascinating uh, insight into your process, Brian. I appreciate it. Uh, if folks want to follow along with what you're doing, uh, how do they go about doing that? We keep a pretty intentionally low profile, and part of that is because we're um, we're institutionally focused, and so you know the you know we, we do get a lot of calls. Hey, will you invest my twenty thousand dollar retirement account or whatever? And that we don't have any vehicles for that. We're institutionally focused. The minimum account size for our small and mid large strategies are in the millions, and and that's intentional. We want to have we, a unique part of our our business is that we don't have any institutional salespeople. We don't have any marketing people. It's just 10 researchers and three operations people. And we manage 4.6 billion in assets. And it's very, very large single accounts that we manage. And that's intentional. We want to give our large clients as much time and with us as they feel like they deserve and and they do deserve. And and we want to have meaningful relationships from our standpoint. And so 
we're trying to continue to build our, our strategies with those types of relationships. So unfortunately, we don't have a way or a vehicle of servicing um, individual clients. And so we try to sort of keep those those inquiries uh, at bay. Um, but, you know, those institutions that do know about us, know how to find us, that, you know, pop on the website or shoot us an email or something like that. But, um, yeah, no no Twitter accounts, no, uh, no social media presence, nothing like that. We kind of intentionally keep a low profile and and um, and try we, there's a there's a small cadre of potential investors that we have that we we try to focus on and and they kind of know how to find us so. well here's where you pitch your book and uh, you earn the next five thousand dollars over the next nine years <laughs> get another 120 dollar check from uh from my royalties yeah that's it so uh what's the the book is the small cap advantage through wiley presumably available in yeah, all good bookstores amazon Kindle is probably what everybody does yeah i think it's two cents for me every single time you do it but um, but yeah, no, I, I appreciate the the opportunity to chat and I really love what you're doing. It does feel, as we said at the outset, like, um, you know, I think when I was, one of the reasons I said my, my, my story I think resonates is that, you know, there are a lot of people in the, in the business that are kind of wondering what it's like to be an investment manager, how to start up, that sort of thing. And I really wish I had a resource like your, you know, your podcast and, and these videos to, to feel like I was a part of a community that, um, you know, that had some social proof out there that, that I could do this. And, and I think that the road is very difficult for people to get from zero to one in this business, but it's possible. And I think that my story, you know, definitely illustrates that. So, um, appreciate what you do too. I couldn't agree more, Brian. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs>